Welcome back, my friends, to the Sweet Spot, where IT leaders share the insights with other leaders and others that want to lead. My name is Carlos Vargas, and as every week, I'm here with my two co-hosts, Howard Holton and Paul Lewis. Hey, guys. Hey there, hey, Carlos. So, <laughs> stories. What make a good story? I am always up for a story. I love campfire stories, uh, stories with the family. What, what type of stories are we talking today? So um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the comedian Patrice O'Neill. Uh, yes. Patrice passed away a few years ago and, um, and I was watching some of his videos. Um, and Patrice O'Neill does a whole bit on storytelling. And the premise of his storytelling bit is women can't tell stories. And he does, he tells the story of his girlfriend trying to tell a story. And she's like, you won't believe what happened today. I was out with my girlfriends and, you know, you know, Clara, right? Clara, you know, she's the little blonde that we went to her wedding and her husband does this. And she had these, like, she had those shoes on at the wedding, you know, and Patrice is like, I don't, like, none of this is working for me. None of this makes any sense. I don't understand. Are you telling the story of the wedding? Are you telling what happened today? Like now I regret saying no, dear, what happened today? You know what I mean? Um, right. And I think we all know people who really don't understand um, how to tell a story. And I think it comes from a place of not understanding the value of storytelling. And the easiest way I know to sum it up is telling jokes, right? Every single joke is based on the premise of a story. A guy walks into a bar. That's the lead into a story. Right. Right. If you've never been into a bar before, never seen the inside of a bar, never watched television to know what a bar should look like, this joke probably isn't going to work. <laughs> right. And if, if you just said, so um, I have a friend, his name's Curtis. I, I really like Curtis, exceptionally intelligent guy. Um, his idea of a crossword puzzle is uh, college level calculus. Right. I see. Um, super smart. And Curtis comes into the, the office one morning and he says, hey, I, I, got, I got this great joke. My grandson told me this joke. He, he says, um, <clears throat> all right, so there's a, there's a train in Cleveland and there's a train in Pittsburgh. Um, where do they bury the survivors? <laughs> ah, ah, see, look at Carlos's face. You can see exactly what my face looked like at the time. And then I started laughing and I said, I said um, Curtis, I'm pretty sure there's more to that joke. <laughs> No, no, that's the joke. Um, Where's the middle part? Curtis, were, the, were they on the same track? Were they headed towards each other? And was there a crash? <laughs> none of those things occurred. And he goes, oh, 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 you're right. I totally screwed that up. <laughs> <laughs> and the best part about that is um, I just told a story about someone else's inability to tell a story that actually had the elements of a story. Right. It had a premise. It had a purpose. Right. And, and, the, the, and it had a goal. Right. And it showed something not um, common. It went a direction you didn't expect. And it revealed something about the human condition. Mm. Right. Um, basically that some people are really bad at telling jokes. Right. So, so if we think about a story, um, why do stories work? And I'm sure I've told this before, but I know not everyone watches all of our podcasts. <laughs> so stories work because the oldest job is neither priest nor prostitute. 
the oldest job in history is in fact the historian of the tribe. The storyteller of the tribe was the person that had the most value in the tribe because the job of the storyteller was to tell us where we came from. And if you know where you came from, then you know who you are. You know your purpose, you know your goal. The job of the storyteller is to tell that story to everyone and to tell it the same way his or her storyteller told it to them. Mm. Now, the beauty of that is you can't change history. You can change the future to not repeat the mistakes of, of the past, but you can't go back in time and change history. And so what we learned was we learned to take the stories of the storyteller and retell them precisely. You cannot retell a story precisely if you are critical about the story. Right. Right. Okay. The God of Apollo every morning, right, um, uh, leashes up his horses, attaches them to his chariot, lassos the sun and pulls it across the sky. That's the story. Right. A critical thinker would go, um, excuse me. I see a thousand problems with that. No matter how far we travel, the sun is still in the sky. Therefore, the sun must be enormous. How big is this God of War? Right. Like it takes all day to pull the sun across the sky. Does he do anything else? Or is he only available at night to fight war? <laughs> right, like, like there's a thousand things that a thousand different people would say to, have, to, to be critical about that story. And yet that story was enduring for thousands of years. And in those thousands of years, what's happened is the human brain has created neural pathways that hear the sounds of a story. We're very, very good at recognizing a story. And we do what my two co-hosts are doing right now. And that is we shut up and we listen, right? The brain instantly goes, ooh, it's a story. I'm interested. Can I have some popcorn and a Coke, right? <laughs> and we go into a fugue state and we just listen. We just consume. Um, and, and that is, in fact, the power of a story. But the other thing that we do is we remember. The easiest way to get someone to remember something is to frame it as a story, right? So you have the two benefits. No matter what you're doing, you've done two things. One, you've made people be quiet and listen, which is the goal of, you know, presenting something. And two, you've made them remember things about what you're telling them at a higher rate than they otherwise would. And they don't have to take notes. So, Paul, why does that matter in your day-to-day -day life? Good question. I, I would also add to that that I usually inform an audience as an example if I'm in front of them that I'm about to tell a series of stories because I want them in the mindset of leaning forward. I want to hear more about the stories you're about to tell versus the slides I'm going to go through or the visuals you're about to see or the products that I might mention. That is not interesting. But if they're if they're sitting up there thinking, okay, I want to I'm gonna be I'm gonna be entertained, I'm gonna learn something I'm going to hear a couple, three things that I probably could repeat because stories are easier to repeat than visuals. Uh, like I need them to be prepared for that. Um, and then you actually have to deliver on that. You can't, you can't then now present something that's a series of slides. You need to present a long story with a series of shorter stories, right? To say, I'm going to move along my point by, by jutting out to this other side story to deliver on it. Uh, I see it as, as, you know, an application of what I what my personal stories might need to look like. Like I have two stories I use most often, which are 
which are based on the same cousin, cousin Derek, I like to call him. So cousin Derek and I get into a lot of mischief when we're together. We're about the same age, but we've traveled the world together. One of the, we're, one of the places we've been to is UK, and this was for Derek's sister's wedding, which was, which was fun and amazing. We really didn't think she was going to get married in fairness. Uh, but we were on our own for one of the evenings. It was about, you know, five o'clock-ish. And we were looking for something to do. We were in the middle of Cheddar. I don't know if you know Cheddar. It's by, uh, by Weston Mara, the sea. It's about an hour away from the, from the West Coast. Uh, and we picked up in the, in the little lodging a little map that said, hey, you, here's, a, here's a quick hour walking path through the, the hills of UK. Hour walking path. It's only five o'clock. It's going to get dark, like seven, eight o'clock. Perfect. Let's jump in on that. So we, uh, we're wearing our good clothes because we have a nice dinner. We, we didn't think it was going to get dirty, but clearly we haven't been to UK before. We, we start on the path. Uh, and as we're reading through the instructions, they became uh, less obvious. Like it's easy to get to the first post, not easy to get to the two trees, <laughs> not easy to the nest on the post uh, by the cow. Because guess what? Cows move. Uh, it was less obvious that it was John Henry's farm. And, and, it, and it, John, Henry, John Henry has a new son. And of course, none of these were roads or paths. In fact, nobody's ever walked this before, apparently. Because we were going up and over stiles constantly from field to field. And we were slightly off our timing it's more like 525 it was getting dark well into the hour we had to walk <laughs> so at about six o'clock when my guess is we were about halfway done of this hour walk uh no light other than the moon like we didn't have phones for a flashlight clearly couldn't read the placard anymore in the middle of a random field our only choice at that point was to find the next farm, walk down its aisle to the street, and best guess which direction to walk, we started walking down the street, hoping we weren't going to get hit by cars. And of course, we were in England, so we were on the wrong side of the street, scaring the bejesus out of us as cars whizzed by us on the side that we were walking on within inches of us walking. Of course, as you'll remember, we're still wearing our church clothes. Uh, now mud up to our knees. We eventually made it two and a half hours later back to the lodging and we were significantly late for this event. So now did you walk up to the, to the little kiosk that had all the maps, grab all of those things and just throw them in the trash? <laughs> Or were we did you not. Canadian for that? Too this Canadian was like an Airbnb, right? It was like it was, it was on somebody else's farm, and they just had that laminated placard that was a good three feet tall, right? And I was holding this with me this entire time. So the, the very next summer, the very, the very same cousin, we were at the campsite in northern Canada, uh, and there's a family campsite. We go there every, every year, and it's a sort of Thanksgiving tradition. Canadian Thanksgiving versus American Thanksgiving. Um, and the only thing that is there is a uh, wood stove and running water. Nothing, no electricity, there's nothing else. Right? You, you, you hunt what you eat. 
Um, and because we are the two boys out of a, of a relatively large family of girls, uh, they got the bedrooms and we got the couches. Uh, and of course, the couches is where uh, most of the dead people died, right? So most of the uncles and aunts who have ever died coming to this is there. So they're known as the dead people couches. Uh, and of course, when you get there, you have to sweep away the mouse and, and rat trappings before you lay down. But one evening, it got incredibly hot. Like it was like just boiling hot. And I had to strip down uh, my covers. And Derek, who's right beside me, like on kitty corner to me, stripped down his. And we're like, what? Why is it so? It's not normally this hot. And we look over this big furnace, this big wooden furnace is now glowing white, not red, glowing white. And I swear to you, it was breathing. I swear to you, it was breathing. And of course, what did we do immediately? We GTFO'd. We got, we got our boots on. We walked right into the cabin. We sat outside chatting about how ugly it would be if that blew, blew up, not thinking about the rest of the family that were in Pakistan in there. He quickly ran in, opened up the, 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 the airflow so it started to get a little cooler in there. Uh, as the temperature reduced, we thought it was fine. We went back to sleep. We didn't tell anybody till the next morning. <laughs> and, and boy, were they mad. Like, I, I guess they expected us to save them, but it was too hot to save. <laughs> too hot to save them. <laughs> hey, y'all, y'all gonna die, bro! <laughs> So I've used those in, the <laughs> in a circumstance in technology. I said, isn't this interesting where people read, need to read directions to get through? And I haven't pre-planned on, on how the actual approach was going to be to actually deliver on this. And isn't this silly Derek Young, my cousin, um, getting me into some weird and wild situations when in realistically, this person saved me both of those times. It was Derek who knew actually where and how to walk home. And he was the one who knew how to how to open up the flu in order to get this breathing, living device back to something normal. But uh, it's also interesting for two for two reasons, right? The first is um, instructions only written by an expert tend to not work for a non-expert. Right. Right. I mean, the first story makes that clear. Um, always have a non-expert read through the instructions that you made before publication. <laughs> right. Right. And the second one is features of a device that are obvious to the creator are not so obvious to the user. Right. Fantastically good stories. So what are the elements that make a good story? Carlos, what did you get out of it? So I will say your story needs to have a character that whoever is listening has to some way, somehow connect to it. I don't think that it has to be themselves, but they need to see that and how it relates to them. You're talking about you were with Cousin Derek or someone else. So the, the character defines, because that's what you're gonna try to see yourself in there. But two, you need to have a point that it will engage you in the story. If you will have started with, I was my cousin, the furnace was going to blow up, we opened. I mean, that's effectively the story, right? That's effectively <laughs> the tale. tale I don't have any more detail. <laughs> but it's not actually entertaining. Exactly. 
And the whole idea of a good story is to take you out of where you are and bring you into that world. So if you see any of the movies, could be Disney, could be Marvel, could be anyone, like, I just remember like when the Mandalorian, the series was coming out, for the longest time since I saw the baby thing, I don't know if it was, I used to call it Baby Yoda, so I was thinking that was Little Yoda, and, that, and then it wasn't until the end, oh, I know. You see, I was engaged into their story, getting into it. Then my wife saw it, and she wanted to buy one. I'm like, what the heck? You don't like any of these? Oh, yeah, I like it. So then she got into the story. You see, the idea of the story is taking you out from where you are and connecting you with the story and then pivoting the story to use it to communicate a message, something that you want the person to take an action. Because if there's no action, then at the end, you're not going to do anything. Like Tom and Jerry, if you see all the cartoons, there was always a reason. One was trying to do something wrong. When you do something wrong, you don't end up getting the correct thing. So, and when when Jerry was the one doing it wrong, Tom was the one being happy. You see? So that was their story. So there's always has to be a point connected to the story. If there's no point, then the story is not going to help you for anything. There also has to be a perspective. <clears throat> it's interesting that you bring up Tom and Jerry because I saw an interesting perspective on Tom and Jerry. Right? We're taught to think that Tom and Jerry do not get along. Mm-hmm. But what if Tom and Jerry are, in fact, best friends? Mm-hmm. And the reason Tom acts on Jerry the way he does is because if he doesn't try to capture, <clears throat> if he doesn't try to capture the mouse, then the homeowner is going to think this is a terrible cat and replace him with another cat that will kill Jerry. Right. Right? Like, it changes how you watch Tom and Jerry then then you understand why Tom never really catches Jerry. Because they're, they're in fact friends, and this is all a show they put on for the homeowner. But, but that brings us to, the, to, the, to one of the most important points of storytelling. You must have and show a perspective. Mm. Right? If, it's, if, you, if there's no perspective, then there's no story. And the perspective has to be the perspective you want the listener to see, hear, and understand. Right. It also must contain elements of entertainment. And the best way to do that is to put yourself in the story. Right. It's infinitely harder to engage an audience if you're the hero of the story. Instead, make the hero someone that you look at because then they can see themselves as that hero with you describing them. Right. Right. So those are some kind of good tips. If you put yourself in the story, be prepared to be self-deprecating. It makes the story much, much better because no one is perfect. Right. And then they get the option to either go, okay, I can see myself doing that. Ha ha ha, that's funny. Or <laughs> I would have done it a different way. And ha ha ha, this is still funny. Right. Right. If you can't laugh at yourself, you're going to have trouble telling stories. So learn to laugh at yourself. The best way I, I came up with to do that is I started telling jokes that, that never had a, a first person pers- perspective as though they were, my, they were mine. I started putting myself as the butt of the joke. Right. Right. Um, and it's amazing how much a story changes when you do that, how much a joke changes when you do that. All right. So there's this one time I'm in Las Vegas and I decided I'm going to go visit a, visit a, a brothel. I've never been to a brothel. 
<laughs> but that's not something that I would do. And, and yet when I tell the joke to people who know me, who know that that's not my personality type, they immediately hear the beginning of a story and they just leap in. Right. And they go, okay, cool. Howard apparently went to a brothel this one time. It's, you know, it's totally made up. And the story generally is a guy goes to a brothel. Right. But that doesn't work. That's not nearly as funny. And yet it's hilarious all of a sudden when I put myself in the joke. Right? So try to, like, when you're trying to develop how to tell a story, take things that you've heard other people say and just learn to retell them. So what's an example you've done in a business setting? Give me, tell us a story that you have frequently told that falls into those categories. Um, I, I tell a lot of stories. That is true. I tell a tremendous amount of stories. Um, I, I don't even know that, like, my stories aren't, aren't as well rehearsed as yours that I use in a business setting. Um, but I tell, I, I tell a ton of stories. Um, I like the story of Uber, of digital transformation. I don't put myself in it, right? But the value to telling the story of Uber is everyone knows Uber. And so everyone in the audience has an experience with Uber. And so it makes it really easy to translate that story, hmm. right? And so that's kind of the other thing. We, I, I think we tend to stray away from those a little too much in business. Like we tend to stray towards, um, I want to find that obscure client story that I can tell when in fact it, it actually makes it harder, not easier, mm. right? Self-identification in a story is paramount. If I'm describing um, the inner workings of a Cessna and the only experience anyone in the audience has with flying is the 747 that brought them to the conference, it's right. not going to have the same value, right? right? Cessna isn't in and of itself self-identifying. Right? That goes over far better in a group of private pilots. <laughs> right. um, so when I talk about something like digital transformation, pick a huge company and tell your take on their digital transformation. Mm -hmm. Even if you've heard it and, it's, and you didn't create the sum of the story, change it so that it is yours. You must be confident in the story you tell. Right. Right? Were you guys bored with the Patrice O'Neill story that I told? Nope. No, nope. you've cooked us in. And, but it's obviously not my story. <laughs> Like I even go into it saying Patrice O'Neill is a comedian and this was a joke he told. Right. But I made it mine by talking about why I was watching Patrice O'Neill. Right. Right. Like, um, so, so you don't have to be part of the story. It's, it's going to be great if you are, but talk about, I'll tell you the Uber story. So Uber is hugely transformational. And the reason Uber is hugely transformational is they fundamentally understand the definition of digital transformation. The definition of digital transformation is to change your company to deliver your products in the way your customers wish to receive them. Mm -hmm. And the wish is the most important part <clears throat> because much like Dr. House says, the user always lies. <laughs> and I don't mean they do it on purpose. I just mean they don't actually think about the thing that they wish they could have got from a service. If you would have interviewed 10,000 people exiting New York City taxicabs and say, hey, if you could change something about your ride, what would you change? You would have received one of three answers. One, I didn't understand the driver and the driver didn't understand me. Two, every time that taxi cab hit a bump, I thought I was going to break my spine. And three, I think I sat in either vomit or urine. Right. The fact is Uber didn't go out of the way to fix any of those three things. 
right? Uber started with what are, what is the reason you get a cab to begin with? I get a cab because I have to be somewhere. Okay, cool. So let's tell you when you're going to get there. That's the reason I get a cab. I have a destination in mind. Right. Two, um, how about we tell you uh, how much it's going to cost? Because the, the black box of the cab is at least anxiety filled, if not flat out terrifying. Did I just step into a three minute ride or a $300 or $3 ride or a $300 ride? And then third, it's really frustrating to have somewhere to be, to have the anxiety of when I'm going to get there, plus the anxiety of how much it's going to cost, and then have to stand out on the street corner and wave like a madman, hoping someone with a light will stop and pick you up. So let's tell you exactly where your car will be and what your car will look like. Those are the only things they set out to solve. Let's be honest, the reason Uber uses nicer cars is because they couldn't afford to fund a fleet of a million cars. So they use someone else's, right? So that's the story of Uber and digital transformation. And, <clears throat> and at no point, one, at no point did I make it up. It's not my story, it's Uber's story. Right. Right. Um, but if you heard Uber talk about it, they would tell it very differently. Mm-hmm. Right? I used my perspective on, on a cab for the example about the three things you would have got from people in cabs. I've been in a lot of cabs, we all joke about it. And right. those three things are designed to be funny. And anyone that's been in a cab has at least one of those that they can check off. And it's right. not designed to be accurate. It's designed to create a perspective to yeah, walk you through a decision-making process. Can do the same thing on Uber versus, or sorry, on Marriott versus Airbnb. Um, I have one on Netflix, all designed to illuminate my definition, which I firmly believe is the best definition of digital transformation. And my definition is informed from other people. I didn't create it all on my own. Mm -hmm. Right. So, what about you? So let me tell a story that applies directly to the audience to which I hope we have. <laughs> CTOs, CIOs, technology executives. Um, so here's what happened several years ago. Several years ago, my organization acquired um, 12 companies in five years. Relatively big set of new companies. And therefore, as you can imagine, I had a whole bunch of technology including licenses for software that spanned uh, open agreements, select agreements, enterprise agreements, so on and so forth. Especially when something it was simple like desktop, right? Like end user technology. Uh, there came a time when some organization, and I'm sure you know who, came to me and said, you know what, it's time to re-up that enterprise agreement. And since you now have 10,000 endpoints instead of 1,000 endpoints, your new price tag is X. Isn't this great? And while it was great, um, it was a uh, order of magnitude greater than I normally would have expected to pay for an enterprise agreement. So uh, their first response to me was, this is clearly financially better than your current model. Uh, you currently pay $1 million, and this is clearly $1 less than $1 million. Therefore, it's better. <laughs> yeah. So my immediate reaction to that, because I know how my CFO thinks, is um, I don't believe either of those two numbers. You're going to have to do some work, roll up some sleeves, and give me a little bit more detail on what that means. 
So they do so. They come back and say, it's $1 less than a million dollars, but here's the explicit value you're gonna get from it. Not only are you gonna get the same value you currently have now, here's a whole bunch of extra things that you can now avoid not buying for, right? And now it's included in this. So now the value is a million and one, even though the price is a million less than a dollar. And I said, while that's an interesting analysis, uh, it is irrelevant to me. Uh, I have no idea whether I would ever use or acquire that technology in the future. Therefore, the value is equivalent to the price. So I need you to do different work. What I really need you to do is apply history, as we talked about. What I really need you to do is to go back five years on those 15 or 12 different companies. And I want you to do the math as if I had bought an enterprise agreement for each one of those companies at that time. Then tell me what I would have paid had I in fact spent that money and then project that forward. If I had saved money that way, will in fact I save money going forward? And they did that math and they found out that in fact, keeping some open agreements was better than consolidating to a full enterprise agreement. But there's value to me in that I've now proven the math so I can go to the CFO and say, hey, this math actually works. But they've actually proven to me that history matters and that history, the knowledge of that applies in fact to the future, even if the future changes over time. Valuable exercise. Yeah. I had almost the same experience with the same vendor. <laughs> I see. Right? So when the company started, um, they tried to put us in a SPLA, which is service provider licensing agreement. Right. Um, at a effective five to 10 X cost. Right. We were a startup and obviously did not have the funding for that. <laughs> right. So we, I dug into <clears throat> the legal requirements. I found within their own licensing agreement definitions that fit us, that moved us out of the SPLA. Right. Um, I came back to them with those agreements and they said, uh, we believe you to be correct. So we're going to authorize that licensing agreement. Perfect. Right. At a, at a tremendous, tremendous cost savings. Perfect. Uh, eight years later, they came to us and said, hey, here's your bill for eight years of being a squaw without being properly licensed. You either will do this or, you know, we're going to shut you down. Right. Right. You have no choice. To wit, I said, no. And they said, you have to. And I said, great. Show me in your actual legal document where I'm violating your license agreement. Right. They point to a website. Hmm. I don't think you understand what I asked for. That's right. Show me in your legal document, the contract between you and me where I violated the license agreement. Right. Point to the website. Okay. Let me inform you using history. Here you go. Right. Here's the document oh, I signed. Yeah. Oh crap. Um, whoever gave you this was wrong. That is not my problem. <laughs> so again, show me where I'm violating the license agreement. So we go round and round. And if anybody, anybody understands, a SPLA is a monthly agreement, mm -hmm. right? Every month you pay. So for me, um, I know I'm not paying penalties. It's their mistake. If it's their mistake, not mine, I'm not paying penalties. You're, you're gonna have to eat it. Um, second, every month that they argue with me, there's no status change. Right. I'm also never going to go backwards and say, well, due to your inaction, I have to pay that. No, no, no. It's not my inaction that's causing this, rather your inability to find information that should be easy for you to find. Right. 
So you want to take a guess how long I was able to put off becoming a squaw? Not the eight years, but from the eight years moving forward? 18 months. 14. 14 months. Nice. It was 14 months later that they finally were able to go, okay, so we figured out where it is. Here's the legal document. The date that it changed was well after the eight years ago. Right. And sorry, but under the new definition, you are in fact a squaw. Right. And, so I saved my, the, the total savings to the company nice. was more than our first three years of revenue combined. Nice. So from that point forward, you paid SPLA. From that point forward, not only did I pay a SPLA, but I actually figured out how to make the SPLA work out so that we paid less than I was previously under my enterprise agreement. Nice. Like we did, I did a bunch of consolidation. I did a bunch of kind of internal math. I kind of, you know, was able to say, you know, really kind of, kind of double down on making sure my documentation was perfect and that my enablements were set exactly correct. Like it wasn't like the spot, the spot was cheaper, mm -hmm. right? It was all of a sudden I was able to go, well, if we're under a different licensing agreement and this is what we need to do, then we can double click on that and go, let's make sure all of our enablements are set correctly. Let's make sure all of our permissions are set correctly. Let's make sure things are running where they're supposed to, how they're supposed to, because now we're going to pay for it. And it, and it ended up being a, a, a tremendous net positive, even if my CFO looked at it and went, what in the holy heck is going on? <laughs> so it's very interesting because I have something similar with, <laughs> I think that same company. <laughs> in our case, uh, we had locations all around the US and in the original agreement, they signed that any PC that was used on a training center mm -hmm. and any server that was development did not have to pay a license. Right. So they actually have set up training centers, locations in each of, uh, when I was working for the company and we had a big thing and they tried to do a renegotiation like that and they were coming with the bill similarly. And we actually have to go back on the history to be able to show. And at that time, nobody understood why those training centers were set up originally and they were trying to cut them down. And when we look at the whole history of everything that was happening, it was, oh, no, let's leave the training centers in there because those are supporting the rest um, so what's very interesting, like you said, the story and how it connects for the purpose, because when then you share that story with someone else, they can understand what is the benefit and then it changed their perspective. Sure. So when we share the story, what happened and everything, then they were like, okay, we need to sit down and understand the whole idea. So back in back in the, um, the single digit 2000s, I don't remember the exact year, I got invited to a, um, a relatively rare Microsoft program um, that had the worst name in history. <laughs> Absolutely the worst. It's an embarrassing name and they put it on everything. It was the Microsoft Delta Force Ranger program. Delta Force Ranger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the theory was they would invite 200 people from around the world that were hardcore engineers um, to come up and sit with the product managers for each of the two, the server 2008 core products. Yeah. Um, and, and really kind of dig in, 
like really kind of get in the weeds um, and create a, a series of technical resources within their partner community that really understood the how and why to this stuff. Hmm. And you've got a half day with each of the program managers individually. Um, worst name. They gave us a Zoom that had the logo on the back. They gave us like a, a free Zoom. A Scott, yeah, yeah. A Scott, I think I used it two times. A Scott Evest that had the logo right here, right? Um, otherwise, a great little like sweater jacket thing, but you really didn't want to have to explain what the hell that logo was. Um, <laughs> there were two that I remember very, very well. One, um, one of my tech heroes is Mark Brzezinovich. And Mark Rosinovich was famous for creating a series of tools called Sys Internals. I guarantee the technical people in the audience are still using some of these tools today if, if they've ever seen them. If you've never seen them, go check it out. Anyways, Microsoft acquired Sys Internals and then, and as part of that, moved Mark Rosinovich around to kind of wherever he wanted to be. Exceptionally intelligent guy. Um, and he was the head of the kernel team for the Server 2008 products and then moved to the, to the Azure team when the Azure team was first being created. Um, so getting to listen to him was fantastic. Being able to ask questions and, and like feel like I belonged in the room was, is the, one of the highlights of my career. However, that's not where I'm going with this story. It's, it was the most work you could do in a week. Like it was an intense series of just bombarding you with information, bombarding you with knowledge, trying to really upscale and uplevel you using the most pressure possible in a room. Luckily, there was free Mountain Dew and Dr. Pepper everywhere. Nice. The last day, we are all completely wiped. We are just toast. I don't remember what the first session was of the last day, right? But that's half the day. Right. The second session, I remember exceptionally well because it was the only session where people groaned and literally fell asleep at their desks. Jeez. It was the licensing session. Right. Right? Microsoft compliance and licensing. So this guy comes in the room and, and just think for a second, like who would you make the program director for licensing and what would that person look like? It was a guy. What right. would that person look like? So keep that vision in your mind because it's probably pretty close. Okay. Right. He looks like the grandfather of an accountant disappointed that someone would choose something as interesting as accounting to go into. <laughs> right. Okay. So he comes in full on monotone. You don't have to wonder why people fall asleep. Right. <laughs> Everybody else is like, oh. <laughs> the guy comes in the room and I go, oh, licensing? And I lean forward in my desk. I've turned to a new page and I start making notes. If you took the entire rest of the week and counted all of the notes, I made that many notes in the compliance and licensing. Wow. Now, I have a particular fascination for the law. I don't expect other people to do that. What I will say is that one half day has saved organizations that I've worked for more than $15 million since wow. that day and will continue. I did licensing consulting of, for companies that were, um, that failed an audit and were getting penalties. Wow. I saved one customer, seven, eight figures. Nice. In that audit. So Look how you. you just had to get a percentage. It's very similar because that is the Ranger program. And I went on 20 and 24, 2013 and 2015. They still have someone doing that session and almost everyone falls asleep <laughs> because they take it after you've been there for now the program it was three three weeks and they put it almost at the end yeah i'd love to do it again 
I really would. I, I, I had a, I had a ton of fun. I learned more in that week than any other single week in, in anything that I've done. It was really fantastic. The I most popular cool. sessions other than the top 10 at Gartner symposium is the licensing sessions, yeah. how to get more out of IBM, Microsoft, Dell, so on and so forth. Yeah. How to get more out of Oracle. How you're good Oracle is a big one. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. So, well, this, this was great. Lots of good stories. Stories are great. So for each one that is listening, remember, it's better to communicate your ideas with a story than just with plain figures and features. It doesn't connect. You have heard different stories. And when you connect with your team, if you tell them a story and they learn to tell the story, then they will connect with your customers internal or external, and that will benefit you because they will remember what you said to them with the story. They're not going to remember just all the other details. So the story is the key. As always, make sure that you share, you subscribe, and we'll see you on our next episode.